0: tonight i would like to speak about the buddha a question that arises for us is what meaning or what significance does the buddha have the buddha is a symbol of reality on different levels one level we can consider him as an historical person. It's a human being who lived about 2,500 years ago, born into particular circumstances, having certain experiences in his life, see his life in a very human way. <clears throat> On another level, we can understand the Buddha as the embodiment the universal archetype of humanity, fundamental archetype of the awakened mind or of Buddha nature. On this level, we can begin to relate to this archetype of humanity, the archetype of awakening, as a potential that is within us all that in the nature of mind is the possibility of realization, is the possibility of awakening. So when we look at the historical individual in terms of this other level of understanding, we can begin to see his life and the particular experiences of his life as the unfolding of a great journey of a sacred journey, of a sacred mythological journey of the spirit. It's the journey of the spiritual hero or heroine. and It embodies certain universal principles. So the Buddha we can see as an individual, as a historical person, as a fundamental archetype. There's another level in which the Buddha also represents the fundamental realities of experience, the fundamental elements, the fundamental dhammas. One time when he was teaching, there was one monk in the congregation of monks and nuns who always sat right in the front row gazing at the physical form of the Buddha. Supposedly represented a great perfection of physical beauty as well as mental beauty. And this one monk was gazing just at this physical form. Finally, after months of this, said that the Buddha reprimanded him. He said, you could look at this form for a hundred years and you wouldn't see the Buddha. That only those who see the Dhamma see the Buddha. This meaning of Buddha is that of the elements of existence, the elements of mind and body, which we all are, that fundamental reality of experience. If we can look and understand the Buddha on all of these levels, as a historical person, as a universal archetype, and as the fundamental reality of experience, Then we can begin to appreciate his life and the unfolding of his life in a much more universal context, not simply as some story, you know, abstract and removed 2500 years ago. But we can begin to see that it embodies this very same journey that we are on, this journey of awakening. The power of myth, and we say that the Buddha undertook this great mythological journey of the spirit. When we say myth in this way, it doesn't mean make-believe. It doesn't mean fairy tale. The power of myth is that it universalizes the particular. It takes the particular experience and generates or highlights the universal experience within them. When we connect with the Buddha's story in this way, we are connecting with our own story, with our own unfolding, in a much more profound context, a much larger context. Very often, if we consider the journeys of discovery of the Earth's great explorers, whether it's the explorers of the planet, or the explorers of the mind, or explorers of a new field of knowledge. For those people who are at the edge of what is known, who are willing to venture into what is unknown, generally we think of the tremendous excitement of discovery. the tremendous mystery of exploring what has never been known before. But we usually don't think of all the mundane annoyances and irritations. You know, the people exploring the planet, the mosquitoes and the dysentery and the bad food and the miserable weather. And yet all of that is part of the journey. In just the same way, all of the countless irritations that we have in our own practice and the difficulties and the times when the mind is bored and restless and pain and the flies are buzzing around your head and all of these disturbances, they're all part of a much larger exploration that is an exploration into the nature of who we are into the nature of what our life is about this is part of the journey of discovery Joseph Campbell is a person who is a great student and scholar and lover of the great myths of humanity and he described in a very wonderful way this archetypal journey of the spiritual hero and heroine. If we can understand the nature of this journey, we can understand our own practice, we can begin to relate to our own experience of discovery in a much larger way, in a much larger context. The first stage of this journey of the spiritual hero or heroine, Campbell calls the call to destiny or the call to awakening. This call to awakening is some experience, something which happens, which prompts a radical shift in our understanding really changes the direction in our lives. We begin to see that our conventional way of viewing things, our conventional way of understanding ourselves and the world, cannot finally satisfy us. We see the inherent limitations of our view of things. Mostly, we live our lives in the domain of the verb, to have. That's how we live in the world. Whether it's having possessions, material possessions, whether it's having relationships. Do you have any children? Do you have a husband? Do you have a wife? Do you have a relationship? Whether it's to our bodies, to our minds. Our whole language is structured around this verb to have and that's how we view things. That's the domain in which we live. I have a body. I have a mind. I have thoughts. It all posits a possessor who has things. The great problem of the domain of having is that whatever we can have of necessity we will lose. And so underlying all of our experience is this vague or not-so-vague sense of unease or anxiety. Eric Fromm had a very nice phrase, this kind of paraphrasing Descartes. Fromm said, I am what I have. (laughs) And that very much expresses this domain of having in which we live, and the attendant unsatisfactoriness, the attendant anxiety involved in that. When the Buddha was born, the Buddha before he became enlightened is known as the bodhisattva, or being, striving for enlightenment. The Bodhisattva was born into a situation in some ways not so unlike our own. Very much in this world of having. He was born to a princely family. His father was a king of a little kingdom in northern India. And at his birth, it said that the wise, some wise people came and prophesied that he would either become a fully awakened awakened being, a Buddha, or he would become a world-conquering monarch. His father, the king, represented very much the same values which we find in our own culture and our own society. That is the values of the secular, the values of having. And so he very much wanted the young prince to follow in his kingly footsteps. So he surrounded the prince, the bodhisattva, with all the allurements of having. You know, he had a loving family, and as he grew up, he had you know, all these palaces and voluptuous attendants and all kinds of things to entice him into this world of having. The Bodhisattva's call to destiny, his call to awakening, occurred when he met or came into contact with what are called the four heavenly messengers. The first three of these messengers are old age, sickness, and death. Now, for the prince and for all of us, we have some contact. I mean, somewhere on the periphery of our awareness, we know that these are facts of life, that they are part of life, they cannot be separated from life. When we take birth, following upon that birth, will come disease, old age, and death. And yet it was only when the bodhisattva connected immediately and intimately with the truth of these aspects of life, not when it was on the periphery of consciousness, but when somehow it was internalized. That was this radical shift of understanding that the world of having does not finally answer our ultimate questions. That it cannot. It said that he considered things in such a way when he saw this, when he saw these facts, these truths, said that he considered, why should I seek being liable myself to disease, old age, and death, why should I seek that which is also subject to disease, old age, and death? That there is no coming to rest in that. There is no coming to peace. And so part of our call to awakening, part of our call to destiny, also has to somehow see the immediacy of these aspects of life. It's not something about other people. It's not something about some future time. What do our values become when we understand, when we face in a very immediate way the truth of these heavenly messengers, there's a shift. The fourth heavenly messenger, which the Bodhisattva saw, or the Bodhisattva saw, was a renunciate, somebody who renounced the world. in an attempt to discover some deeper value, some deeper meaning to life. It was a shift from the world of having to the world of being. That's the meaning, that's the significance of renunciation. So it's helpful for us in our own practice, we have all experienced this call to awakening or we wouldn't be here. Something in all of us has been touched very deeply that has been powerful enough to turn us away from the domain of acquiring, from the domain of having, turned us to the domain of being. It's a helpful reflection to consider from time to time what our own call to awakening consisted of. What was it that was our initial motivation, our initial inspiration to begin this journey? Because it is a sacred journey and it's a universal journey. The second stage of this path, of this journey, is the call to awakening. second stage is called the great renunciation. And the great renunciation means giving up our attachment to what we know, to what is familiar, to what is comfortable, to the conventional order of things. It's a willingness to give that up to give up what is known as a way of opening to what is unknown, to the mystery underneath things. We give up the world of having and we shift to the world of being. We do it in many ways, in a very, in a very obvious way, Way, just in coming here there's been a renunciation of friends of family, of familiar surroundings that is, that is a significant renunciation but it's not enough there has to be an inner renunciation as well where we change our verbs from have to be sitting and there's a pain in the knee how do we experience it? I have a pain in my knee, I have a pain in my back I have a pain in my neck. That's the world of having we are possessing it. If we are able to renounce that viewpoint, renounce that way of seeing things to actually go deeper, to go underneath that what do we find? There is no I have that there are changing sensations of burning, and pressure, and stabbing, and twisting, and... (laughs) One of these days soon I have a long list of painful sensations. So for those of you who are struggling with the vocabulary, (laughs) I'm going to come down and read them. That's renunciation. Letting go of that sense of I have and really going underneath to see what is actually there. The same thing with our thoughts. Can we undertake this great renunciation in relationship to our thoughts, to the emotions, instead of reaching out to possess every thought that comes through? As if the thought belongs to us, as if it's something we can have or possess. Can we let go of that? Can we renounce that? as a suggestion, treat every thought as if it's coming from the person behind you. (laughs) Your relationship to them will be very different (laughs) and it'll be a big relief. (laughs) This is all part of renouncing, renouncing what is familiar, our usual conventional way of understanding. For the bodhisattva, there was a very significant and symbolic renunciation that took place, which is when he left the palace, he left the family, he left that world of secular values, and he went off in quest, he went off in search of the deeper sense of being, and it said that he went through various, studied various disciplines and went to study with different teachers, all the levels of samadhi, of concentration, of absorption, in which the mind can become so powerful and strong. And he wasn't satisfied. And then he did the six years of ascetic practices, these intense deprivations, in an attempt to subdue this sense of ego, this sense of self. And there's a a very powerful image, which some of you may have seen. It's called the image of the emaciated Buddha or Bodhisattva. And the image just shows, it depicts what's described in the suttas. He said when he reached in to touch his stomach, he would touch his backbone. And likewise from the back. He had starved himself so much in this effort to free the mind. And for six years he undertook these kinds of disciplines until he saw, until he realized that this was not the way. And finally he took some nourishment, he regained his strength and he sat down under what is now the Bodhi tree in preparation for the third great stage in this journey. There's the call to awakening, the great renunciation, The third stage of this mythological journey of the spirit is the great struggle. And Joseph Campbell describes in a very beautiful mythopoetic way the nature of the struggle. As the Bodhisattva sat under the Bodhi tree. I'd like to read it to you. And if you can... The imagery is very grandiose. It's worthy of what was actually happening under the tree that night. And so if you can just allow your mind to play with the images. The Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree. And straightway was approached by Kama Mara, the god of desire and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant, carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended twelve leagues before him, twelve to the right, twelve to the left, and in the rear as far as to the confines of the world. The protecting deities of the world took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And the god Kamamara then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, and blistering sands Fourfold darkness, the antagonist hurled against the bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gautama's perfections. Mara then deployed desire and pining and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants. But the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting on the immovable spot and flung his razor sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars so that the elephant of the antagonist fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. Big night (laughs) under the Bodhi tree. What we often forget is that every time we sit, we are also sitting under the Bodhi tree. It is exactly the same situation. And just like the Bodhisattva in that situation, we are assailed by the force of Kama Mara, by all the forces of ignorance in the mind. Of desire and lust and anger and fear and boredom and restlessness. This is the great struggle, which Campbell talks about as it's part of the journey of awakening. If we can understand what is happening in this context, then it gives a much greater sense of energy and inspiration to our efforts our efforts start to resonate in an arena which is much larger than just the immediate experience. Something much bigger is going on. It's really the confronting in the most basic way, just as the Bodhisattva did under the bodhi tree, with all the forces of ignorance. And we bring to it our faith and our confidence And our willingness and our effort and our mindfulness and our concentration, we bring to it and develop those very same powers of mind. The fourth stage of this great journey is the great awakening. There's the call to destiny, the call to awakening, the renunciation, the great struggle and then the realization. For the Bodhisattva, this happened and is described in terms of what he saw in the three watches, the three periods of the night, that night under the Bodhi tree. It said that in the first watch of the night, his mind opened to the countless past lives, to his own innumerable past lives, in which... He'd been born, living out the circumstances of it, dying, being reborn, and this long, long quest which brought him to that, to that place. He saw the endlessness that said that there is no beginning to this wandering in samsara. The meaning of samsara, usually it's translated as round of rebirths, the more literal meaning of samsara is perpetual wandering. And that's what the bodhisattva's mind opened to that night. He saw the endlessness of, the, of this wandering from one life to the next, from one moment to the next, with no rest, with no stability. So the insubstantiality of this whole long process In the second watch of the night, his mind opened to seeing the destiny, the birth and rebirth of other beings. He saw how beings take birth according to their karma, according to their actions. And how so many people, so many of us, are seeking to be happy, are seeking to be peaceful, are seeking to live comfortable lives, And yet because of not understanding the causes of happiness, the conditions for it, we do those very things which create suffering for ourselves. And so when the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, saw this play of birth and death according to the law of karma, his mind was filled with compassion. In the third watch of the night, his mind open to the deepest truths of our experience, the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination, how our mind creates bondage and suffering, how that happens, how that process, how we get entangled in it, and the possibility of freedom. And it's said that just as the morning star emerged, just upon seeing the morning star his heart awakened. He attained full enlightenment, full realization. And he uttered a verse, which he, he said that at the time he said it silently in his own heart. Later he described it as he was teaching. These were the first words of the Buddha after his enlightenment said, I traveled through the rounds of countless births seeking but not finding the builder of this house, this house of mind and body. Sorrowful is repeated birth again and again. O house builder you have now been seen and you shall build no house again. Your rafters have been broken Your ridgepole shattered, the rafters of defilement, the ridgepole of ignorance. Mind has attained to unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. The mind has, ach- has attained to unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. Imagine what it would mean to be able to say those words that we have come to the end of craving, the end of grasping, that we have come to a place of freedom. Some weeks after his enlightenment, he spent some weeks contemplating various aspects of the Dharma. And then he went to a small town outside of Sarnath, outside of Benares, so this town called Sarnath in India, where he gave his first discourse. And it's called the setting of the wheel of the law in motion. The setting of the wheel of the Dhamma in motion. And it's so beautiful to think that that wheel which was set in motion, that wheel of truth, set in motion 2,500 years ago in Sarnath in India, somehow has rolled across Asia, across the Pacific, across America, into Barry, Massachusetts. <laughs> you know, this wheel of the law. that was an amazingly profound event that is still reverberating in the world and in our lives. What is it that the Buddha taught for the next 45 years. Of course, he elaborated many aspects of the Dhamma. But when he was asked to describe most succinctly what is the essence of your teaching, he would answer very simply. He would say, I teach the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. That is what it is about. To come to an understanding of the suffering that is true in our lives and in the world, and to come to the end of suffering, to come to the place of peace. What is this truth of suffering? And when we look outside in the world, it's it's hugely obvious. I mean, there is so much pain and sorrow and suffering in the world, in so many domains. There's just countless millions of people starving and diseased and suffering all kinds of deprivation and political exploitation and torture and warfare and the threat of nuclear holocaust and environmental disasters, and the list is it's astounding, it's astounding. Sometimes it's so overwhelming that I think we tune it out out of defense. We can't quite take it in. And yet it's important for us to connect, not to close ourselves off. To see that it's a very real condition of our lives. It's not only outside. When we look at our own bodies, what is the nature of the body? What were those three heavenly messengers saying? What do they say to us? You know, so often we think of disease or old age or death as a mistake. Somehow this is a mistake and it shouldn't be happening. It's not a mistake. It is the nature of things. And it is the nature of things for everybody. Can we connect with this personally and intimately and right now? This is part of what the Buddha was trying to awaken us to. This truth of suffering, the reality of it. Mostly, though, we get so caught in this world of having, we relate to all the objects, both in ourselves and outside. It's something to hold on to, something to get, something to have, that we close ourselves to seeing this. There's the suffering of the body, there's the suffering of the mind. You know, and you've probably had a fair taste of that just in this last week, of the range of unpleasant feelings, emotions, this fear, this anxiety, this boredom, this restlessness, this grief, this sorrow, this hatred, this anger, there's so much burning in the mind so much of the time. This is the truth of suffering that the Buddha was trying to open us to, to acknowledge, to see that it is true. He talked of three different kinds of suffering. The word for suffering in Pali is dukkha. In some way dukkha it's it's hard to translate just as suffering because it means much more than that. The first kind of dukkha the Buddha called dukkha dukkha. That's the suffering of painful feelings, of painful sensations it's obvious suffering the next kind of suffering is that of suffering of change that pleasant things pleasant experience even though we enjoy it in the moment in its nature is going to disappear and so there's a suffering involved there's an unsatisfactoriness an incompleteness in it pleasant feelings as a source of happiness are very unreliable. There's a third kind of dukkha, which is called Sankara dukkha, or the dukkha of suffering just of conditioned experience. when we take a look at what life is, and we ask the question, what is this thing we call life? And if we take care not to get caught in a net of views or sentiment or attachments, but we really take a very direct look at this experience which we call life, what is it that we say? We see that What we call life is a process of continually changing phenomena, arising and passing, arising and passing each moment. Thoughts and feelings and sensations and sounds and sights. Every moment this process is arising and vanishing and it's doing it very, very quickly. This is not some theory or some abstraction. This is what we can directly perceive in our own experience when we pay attention. You see this momentariness, the incessant momentariness of phenomena, and that's what this is. When we open to it in this way, when we understand the truth of it, the reality of it, we begin to appreciate in a much deeper way what the Buddha meant when he talked of the truth of suffering. The unsatisfactoriness, the incompleteness of it. The power of the teaching, the power of his enlightenment, the culmination of this great journey of the Spirit does not rest with the opening to suffering. It comes to culmination, it comes to perfection in the realization of the end of suffering. That's what the path is all about. That's what the Buddha's awakening is all about. What is the end of suffering? The end of suffering means in one way coming to the end of those conditions in the mind which cause us to suffer. Coming to an end of the defilements in the mind of greed, of hatred, of anger. Of fear, and we can do that in a very momentary way. We have many experiences of this in our practice. I'll just relate one one story, which many people. I mean, we. It's all part of our practice. It was when I was uh, this last time in Burma. The conditions were so hard there. The food was hard, and the The noise, the loudspeakers and the construction. Sometimes it felt like I was just living in this insane asylum. It was incessant, loud, irritating noise all the time. Much of the time. (laughs) And for quite a spell, my mind got into a complaining mode. I was just, internally I was complaining all the time (laughs) how terrible this was. I had gone all this way and that it was really terrible. And I was suffering in this complaining mind. It was a very unpleasant state. And then one day, finally, this remembrance occurred. Oh yes, I can note this. Oh, complaining, complaining, complaining. What was so amazing was that obviously the conditions didn't change at all. But in the moment of actually becoming mindful of the complaining mind rather than justifying it, in that moment the whole state left, the mind became free in that moment of that suffering, of that defilement. That power is within us all. But for some reason we delight in justifying our suffering. I have a right to complain because these conditions are so bad. You know, uh, it's, like, it's like holding on to a hot, burning coal and arguing about, there's a reason why I'm holding this. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, and yet we do it all the time. Our practice, and right in that situation, we can see what the Buddha was talking about, the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. We suffer when we get identified with or get caught or get lost in these states of defilement or hindrance. And we have the power through our awareness, through our attention, through our wisdom to just see it, not identify to let go. We come to the end of suffering. And there's another meaning to this understanding of peace. And the Buddha's enlightenment, the Buddha's awakening, was his realization of what is beyond this process of incessant change. It's called many different things, the unborn or the unoriginated, the unconditioned, Nibbana it's really that state of unconditioned peace. It's not dependent on changing conditions. And this is the fruit of our practice. It's like we are developing the skill of mind and the momentary freedom of mind so that there is an actual opening to the state beyond the process of change, beyond the process of conditioning. Just imagine for a moment. You're in a room. You no, know, you're in some kitchen, and there's the hum of the refrigerator. You know, and you don't even know. You're not even aware of the hum until, at a certain point, it stops. You know, and all of a sudden there's a ah, peace, silence. This is the hum, and we're not even aware of the dukkha of it until it stops. But from that place of stopping, the experience of that peace, of that silence, it's that sense of coming home, of coming to rest. This is what our practice is about. This is what the Buddha's journey was about, this is what our own journey is about. A necessary component of our journey and of our practice is a sense of spiritual urgency. We cannot hope to make this shift from the domain of having to the domain of being, from the realm of suffering to the end of suffering, without an enormous commitment of energy. This is not a trivial undertaking. We are sitting under that bodhi tree and all the forces of ignorance are assailing the mind. We have tremendous power. Don't underestimate, don't undervalue the power that you have, the power that brought you here. But it takes marshalling that with a sense of urgency, with a sense of importance. Sometimes people come on retreat, they might spend the first few weeks easing into the schedule. You know, the schedule is actually a starting point, it's not something to ease into. It's the schedule as a starting point. Then, as you sit and settle in, you can expand. That sense of energy and willingness, even more. Be very full. The time is extremely precious, and it may seem like three months is a long time. It will go like that. So don't delay in the fullness of your practice. Every sitting, be sitting under the Bodhi tree every walking, every movement. That's what enables us to actually bring this path of practice to completion. That's it for a few minutes. Thank you for listening.